This episode of the Art of Manliness podcast is brought to you by Spotify. Spotify is making it easy for you to stream this podcast and many others like it on your mobile device, desktop app, and smart speaker. Just open the app on your mobile device or desktop, click on the browse channel, then click on the podcast section. And while you're there, make sure to subscribe to the Art of Manliness podcast. You'll be able to stay thoroughly entertained during your commute to work, drive home, and downtime thanks to Spotify. So go check it out. Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. Now, when you think about diet and nutrition, you probably think about carbs, proteins, and fats. These are macronutrients, and they play a huge role in athletic performance and whether you gain or lose weight. But food is also full of micronutrients that are vital to your health and well-being. Unfortunately, most modern people overlook micronutrients and consequently are deficient in them. My guest today has spent her career researching the ill effects of micronutrient deficiencies and what you can do to optimize them. Her name is Dr. Rhonda Patrick, and she's a biomedical scientist. And today on the show, Rhonda and I discuss micronutrients, what they are, what they do, and why we're not getting enough of them. We then dig into her research into nutritional genomics, or how genetics affects how your body processes nutrition. And we end our conversation discussing how stressing yourself with cold exposure, heat exposure, and fasting can boost your health. After the show's over, check out the show notes at aom.is slash optimize. And Dr. Patrick joins me now via Skype. Dr. Rhonda Patrick, welcome to the show. Thank you. So tell us a bit about your background and your area of focus when it comes to health, diet, nutrition, genetics, etc. So I have a PhD in biomedical science. I have done research on aging. I've done research on metabolism, cancer metabolism, and I've done research on micronutrients, which are about 30 to 40 essential vitamins, minerals that we must get from our diet because they're essential for life, and how micronutrients are really important for health and for preventing certain biomarkers for age-related diseases. So I've kind of done a, a broad range of research, you know, everything from metabolism to cancer to just you know, looking at the aging process itself. And, and you've also you know, tapped into like looking in genetics as well, how genetics interacts with all these things. Right. The field sort of called nutrigenomics. And, and that area of research of mine has not been something I've actually published on, but is an interest that I've sort of just researched because I'm very interested in that field, you know, for, for selfish reasons. And just because I'm, it's, it's a fascinating field, how people are respond differently to different types of diets to different macronutrients and micronutrients and things like that. So let's talk about micronutrients. We've had guest nutritionists on the show just to discuss macronutrients, carbs, fats, proteins. And your focus, as you said, is micronutrient deficiencies and their roles in age-related diseases. So you mentioned micronutrients. There's these 30, there's 30 of them. What are they and what are some of the big ones that play a, a big role in our health and possibly disease prevention? Well, you know, they're 30 to 40, some, somewhere around there, and they are essential vitamins and minerals, you know, like magnesium, vitamin C, vitamin K, things like that. We have to get them from our diet because without them, you die. Recommended daily allowances have been set for these vitamins and minerals to ensure that we get adequate, adequate amounts of them. But the way the RDA is set is that 
studies are done in animals where animals are made deficient of a certain micronutrient. So for example, a B vitamin. And once the deficiency level, you know, causes an animal to die, the RDA is set a couple of standard deviations above that. So essentially it's just the RDAs are just to sort of maintain, you know, normal health just to make sure that, you know, people don't, don't have such a deficiency that they get sick and, and die. So that's kind of, you know, important to, to understand because we don't really know what levels are needed to, to prevent and stave off, for example, diseases of aging. But with that said, there's a variety of, of micronutrients that are really important for, for disease prevention. For example, magnesium. Magnesium is an important mineral. It's actually found at the, it's, it's at the center of a chlorophyll molecule, and chlorophyll is what give plants their green color. So magnesium is found in plants, you know, leafy green plants, and it's a cofactor for enzymes, which means basically enzymes in your body are what are ret- running your metabolism. They're running a variety of processes, and these enzymes require certain cofactors, which are, you know, vitamins and minerals to make sure they run, you know, properly. And so magnesium is required for, for, for cofactor that repairs damage to DNA and DNA damage actually is a precursor to mutations that can lead to cancer, to, you know, mutations that just accelerate the aging process in general. So when you don't get enough magnesium, you start to get more and more DNA damage. And as decades sort of pass on, you eventually can acquire more and more mutations that lead to cancer. So, so that's just, you know, one example. Folate's another one. Folate's also found in dark leafy green vegetables and folate's required every time you're going to make a new cell, you have to make new DNA. Well, you need folate to make a precursor to make new DNA. So every time you're going to make a new cell in your liver or your kidney or your heart or your brain, you need folate. And it's been shown actually that if you have deficiency in folate, it can be similar to actually standing underneath ionizing radiation in that it damages your DNA because you don't have that precursor that you need to make it. So your body kind of like does this weird thing where it incorporates something else that's not supposed to be there and it causes damage. So that's another example. You know, there's, there's other examples. Omega-3 fatty acids are really important. You know, studies have shown that people with the highest omega-3 fatty acid intake have like a 9% reduced all-cause mortality, which means they're 9% less likely to die early from cardiovascular disease or cancer or Alzheimer's disease or Parkinson's disease. So, so those are some examples of uh, important micronutrients for health. Vitamin D is also another one, but uh, vitamin D is not something that's typically consumed from, from diet. It's actually made from UVB radiation when the, the sun hits our skin. But the problem is a lot of people now are wearing sunscreens, which blocks UVB radiation, which means you don't make vitamin D when you're in the sun. Also, just being indoors a lot, you know, people are in their offices and the cubicles, their other, you know, computer screens, spend less time outside. So vitamin D deficiency has become a little more common than it was, you know, a few decades ago when people spent a lot more time outside. Vitamin D is extremely important for a lot, a lot of processes. In fact, about 5% of the human genome you know, is regulated by vitamin D, which actually gets converted into a steroid hormone. So it, it's, it's not just a vitamin. It actually gets converted into a hormone inside the body. So that's another example of a really important uh, micronutrient. 
So you're talking about deficiencies. Is, is micronutrient deficiency a problem in our modern age or are certain segments of the population more susceptible to micronutrient deficiencies? Because like most food is like, you know, fortified and things like that or most processed foods. Right. Yeah. So actually um, I mentioned the RDAs and there's a, a lot of nutritional health and examination surveys that have been done that have found, for example, in the United States at least, about 70% of the population does not have adequate levels of vitamin D. About 60% of the U.S. population does not have adequate levels of vitamin E. Vitamin E is found in foods like nuts, avocados, olives, olive oil. About 45% of the U.S. population has inadequate levels of magnesium. Again, magnesium is in dark leafy greens. 35% of the population has inadequate levels of vitamin K, Vitamin K is also found in dark leafy greens. Vitamin A, so 34% of the U- 4% of the U.S. population does not have adequate levels of vitamin A. So uh, you get the point. There are these you know, inadequacies which are not quite deficiency. I mean, when you get to real deficiency, you can start to have acute health problems crop up. But inadequacy still means you're not getting an adequate level of the vitamin or the mineral so we do know that that is the case in the United States, which really means people are not eating enough of their leafy greens, they're not eating enough of their, you know, of of the healthy foods, healthy nuts and avocados and things like that. We do know that people that are overweight and obese tend to be the most deficient, have the most uh, micronutrient inadequacies, because those people that are obese and overweight also tend to eat a diet that is micronutrient poor and more rich in like refined carbohydrates and refined sugars and processed foods and things that may have a lot of calories, may have a lot of sugar and fat, but don't necessarily have a lot of micronutrients. I was going to say, can you just take a, a multivitamin to make up the deficiency or does, or does not, is that not adequate enough? You know, so taking a multivitamin, you know, may help sort of, sort of serve, serve as like an insurance to make sure that you're, you know, at least it, it certainly has been shown in studies that people that are deficient that take a multivitamin, they can bring their levels up to a more adequate level in some cases, or at least better than they were. But of course, it's best if you can eat a, a varied diet, you know, a diet that's, you know, rich in a variety of different vegetables and fruits, because those are, you know, very good sources of micronutrients. And also fish is a great source of, of omega-3 fatty acids. But, you know, a multivitamin, I don't know if it would solve the problem, but it certainly does seem to help, at least according to some studies that have been done. So we're talking a lot about, you know, we need adequate micronutrient consumption to stave off certain diseases. But like, you know, we're living in an age where everyone wants to optimize, like optimize everything. So like, let's say someone like is on top of their micronutrient game. They're getting out in the sun. They're taking magnesium. They're drinking green smoothies, whatever, every day. Like it, is that going to like provide any benefit? Like, is there such thing as too much of a good thing or is it sort of diminishing returns as you consume more micronutrients? Well, I de- it definitely just depends on the micronutrient we're talking about. If you're talking about too much of a good thing, you know, some of the fat soluble vitamins like vitamin D, vitamin A, you know, you can get too much of those. And that's certainly something, you know, to be aware of. I mean, you don't want to mega dose or overdose on some of these vitamins like vitamin, vitamin D or vitamin A, but you know, the, the question is, how much of these micronutrients do we need to, to stave off age-related diseases? And as I mentioned, you know, the way these RDAs are set, they're set on preventing, you know, animals from dying. 
and going a couple standard deviations above that and saying, okay, well, that's how much we need to make sure humans aren't going to like get sick and die from the, a deficiency in a certain micronutrient. But what we don't know, you know, is, well, how much of these micronutrients like magnesium are needed to prevent DNA damage? You know, so a lot of metabolic pathways require micronutrients, but some of these metabolic pathways are essential for like short-term survival. So for example, I've already mentioned magnesium, you know, magnesium is required to make and utilize energy. And when that means without magnesium, you can't make energy. And essentially, if you can't make energy, you're eventually going to die. So that's a really important metabolic process that requires magnesium. But magnesium is also required to repair DNA damage. Well, DNA damage isn't going to have any effect on your short-term short-term health. I mean, you can you can acquire a lot of DNA damage, and it's not going to matter until about 30, 40, 50 years later when you start to then get mutations that can lead to cancer. So my former postdoctoral mentor, Dr. Bruce Ames, actually proposed a theory, which he calls triage theory, where those metabolic processes that are required for short-term survival will get their share of the micronutrient first because nature wants you to survive long enough to reproduce and pass on your genes, whereas the processes that are more concerned with long-term maintenance, process involved in you know, mitigating aging uh, in the long term, they ultimately get neglected. So it's kind of like a strategic rationing of micronutrients. And it's sort of helpful to think about how the body may deal with micronutrient inadequacies. And he's actually published a couple of uh, theoretical studies backing you know, this, this idea. But you know, the reality is, is that we don't really, really know. We don't have enough empirical evidence to say the RDAs are enough to prevent aging. They're enough to prevent DNA damage or prevent calcification of the arteries or, you know, to prevent these, this type of insidious damage that leads to age, age-related diseases. So, you know, I think, I think that the best thing someone can do is at least make sure they're, they're trying to, for, for sure, meet the RDAs, which, as I mentioned, a large proportion of the U.S. population is not even doing that. But in addition to that, you know, making sure you're getting a nice broad spectrum of of, you know, whole foods, you know, variety of colors of vegetables and a variety of fruits and healthy meats and things like that are, I think are, are probably your best bet. Right. So you don't, you don't have to do anything crazy. I mean, that's, that's just so funny about health advice. It always comes like eat good food, sleep well and exercise. And like, <laughs> that's all you have to do. I mean, it's kind of the bare minimum and you'll be okay. Yeah. It's pretty much, I mean, that's like the safe thing that we can do right now. Right. I mean, until we have, you know, we have more more evidence as to what you know what what else can we do right so you mentioned earlier you you do genomics is that genomics is right is that the right yeah nutrigenomics right? it's it's nutrigenomics yeah. all right so this is sort of a your your passion project and you've got tools on your website found my fitness where people can you know upload their dna basically and you can sort of see which how your body might respond to different mi- micronutrients so what role do genetics play and how our body uses both micronutrients, but even macronutrients? It, it plays a really important role. So, you know, the whole like idea behind nutrigenomics, which is this interaction between genes and diet is that, you know, throughout human history, you know, our diet has been really dictated by where we lived. So according to, to geography. So when you live in a certain part of the pre-industrialized world, 
you only had certain foods that were available to you. And so the foods, you know, that were available, available to you had very different composition, uh, different micronutrients because the soils are different. So different plants are taking up different micronutrients differently. Also, you know, different macronutrients, you know, some people had access to more animal products. Some people had less access to uh, animal products. So within a given region, it's reasonable that to expect that over time, over multiple generations, people began to adapt to, to tolerate very different nutrient thresholds, both micronutrients and also macronutrients. I mean, so that's sort of the theory behind behind the nutrigenomics. But to get you know to your question, you know specifically, what role does it does it play in, for example, the metabolism of micronutrients or, or macronutrients? We know that it, there there's there's a variety of variations in genes that regulate both of these things. So for example, one of the probably most well-established findings in this area is, is how your body responds to saturated fat and in turn how, how that affects your, your cholesterol levels. So there's a, there's a gene called APOE that's very important for recycling cholesterol. And about 25% of the population has a version of it called APOE4 that can predispose them to very, very high LDL cholesterol, cholesterol levels. So, you know, people with this version of it have a really high risk for heart disease, and they also have a really high risk for Alzheimer's disease. So that's probably one of the, the best established, you know, genes that regulates cholesterol levels. So I actually became interested in this field because I found out that I had one version of the APOE4 and so I had to really tailor my, my saturated fat intake because saturated fat, which is found in foods like dairy products, butter, very fat, fatty cutting mitts of, cuts of meat like pork. And so I found out I had one of, the, one of those copies and I had, to, I had to sort of tailor my diet to lower the amount of saturated fat I was taking in. And that really did change my LDL levels. Another really uh, well-established nutrigenomic finding in this area is the omega-3. There's, a, there's three different versions of omega-3. One of them is a plant version. And the plant version called alpha-linolytic acid can be converted into eicosapentaenoic acid, which is usually found in you know, fish, and which then can be converted into the other form, docahexaenoic acid, um, DHA, which is also found in fish. Well, it's, it turns out that the gene that converts alpha-linoleic, also called ALA, into EPA is very, there's variations in it. So some people do it very poorly. For, for example, they, they can do it 30% less efficiently. So, 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 so some people, for example, that are vegetarians, it's actually really important for vegetarians because vegetarians are relying solely on their source of omega-3 from plants, which are flax seeds, chia seeds, microalgae oil. Those are great sources of omega-3. But these, you know, people that are not converting it very well into EPA and DHA have to really know that because then they really can't rely on flaxseed or chia seed. They have to rely more on microalgae oil because the microalgae oil already has it in the form of DHA. So that's another one. Vitamin D is another one that's also regulated. Some people don't convert vitamin D3 into the steroid hormone very well, the active form of vitamin D. And those people actually, if they're supplementing, may have to take an even a higher dose than other people that don't have that variation would. So I think those are some of the probably best established uh, findings in that area. Yeah. No, I, I have the vitamin D thing. Like I don't convert it as well. Ah, have you had your vitamin D levels measured? 
No, so I just did. I haven't gotten the results yet from my doctor. My mom has done that, gotten the vitamin D, and she's been found deficient even though she was taking a vitamin D supplement. So she actually had to increase her vitamin D. So I'm imagining that there is a, an issue there of genetics. Yeah, I've had a few friends that have also had that issue where they were they were taking supplement vitamin D supplements in even quite large doses, and still that was sort of wasn't moving the needle, you know, in terms of raising their their blood levels of vitamin D. By the way, really adequate levels of vitamin D are considered to be between forty and sixty nanograms per milliliter, because that's associated with low the lowest all cause mortality within like there's like thirty three different studies that have been analyzed that have found that. So typically when people take a vitamin D supplement, generally speaking, if you don't have the variation that we were talking about, generally 1000 IUs of vitamin D will raise blood levels by five, five nanograms per milliliter. Now people with that certain variation, that's not the case and they actually may have to take more. But um, the only way to know that is to to get a blood test and also look at your your genes as well. So doing both is really important. We're going to take a quick break for your word from our sponsors. All right, if you love exploring new products and brands, but don't have time to scour the internet looking for them, you have to check out BespokePost.com. BespokePost is a subscription club that offers monthly theme boxes curated from unique and upcoming brands from around the world. They've got a wide variety of box themes, style, grooming, cooking, drinking, travel. They got you all your bases covered. There's no commitments. They tell you what box you're assigned on the first of each month, and you have five days to keep it, switch it, or skip it. The box that I got that I really liked was the refresh box. It comes with a nice waxed canvas stop kit from Blue Claw, and also some hair products from Mitch, also some other just old school shaving and soap products in it as well. Each subscription box only goes for 45 bucks and it has over $70 worth of goods inside. If you want to figure out which box is good for you, just visit bespokepost.com and answer a few short questions that'll help gauge your interest and get a feel for your style. If you want to get 20% off your first purchase of a subscription box, go to bespokepost.com and enter promo code manliness at checkout. Again, 20% off your first box at B-E-S-P-O-K-E post dot com promo code manliness again 20% off bespokepost.com promo code manliness also by yourmechanic.com is there anything worse than sitting in the waiting room of a repair shop or getting the call that your car is going to take two more days to fix and it's going to cost hundreds more than estimated well you need to check out yourmechanic.com with yourmechanic.com they send the mechanic right to your home or office they could be replacing your brake pads right now out in the driveway while you know you're doing whatever you're doing at your house better yet at yourmechanic.com you get a quote up front and it's the actual price you pay they'll even show you what it could cost if you went to another repair shop somewhere else and they back up every service with a 12,000 mile 12 month warranty not to mention they give full background checks to all their mechanics who have 10 years of experience on average so car won't start check engine light bugging you need a brake job call the day to schedule an appointment or you can visit yourmechanic.com slash manliness and mechanic will come to your home or office for a limited time you'll even save $20 off your first service again yourmechanic.com slash manliness to get that $20 off your first service or call 1-800-701-6230 yourmechanic.com slash manliness and now back to the show yeah and i also i mean I, I used your tool and i also found that i think i have i have the saturated fat thing where it increases ldl so i have to like watch out for saturated fat and that like consuming high levels of fat will make me obese like so, which was interesting because you know everyone talks about. I, I've tried the you know paleo or no carb diet, and I always got fat and tired doing it, and it was frustrating. Cause it's like, well, look at all these guys online; they're just shredding body fat, and I'm just tired and fat. Yeah, that's interesting. You probably had so there's a variety of different genes that regulate the way your body metabolizes saturated fat. And, you know, FTO is one gene. Another one is uh, the PPAR alpha and gamma. And for people that have a certain variation of that gene, 
if they have a high saturated fat and low polyunsaturated fat and monounsaturated fat intake, they can have increased obesity risk. They can have increased LDL levels, increased triglycerides, and even increased insulin problems with insulin and glucose, blood glucose levels. So there was a study that was published a couple of years ago that was a really well-done study in this, this field, nutrigenomics, that came out of the Weizmann Institute in Israel. And the study basically took 800 people and put continuous glucose monitors on them, which measure blood glucose levels every five minutes. And they gave these people then a variety of different diets. So they gave them either a high fat diet or a high carbohydrate diet, like that were more vegetable kind of carbohydrates and then a, a high refined carbohydrate diet. And what the study found was that people had various responses in terms of their high blood glucose, depending on their genetics and also their gut microbiome composition. But, you know, so it wasn't like some people were given the fat and their blood glucose levels shot up, even though, you know, fat is very low on the glycemic index because it doesn't have, you know, glucose. You'd think, well, your, your blood glucose levels shouldn't rise. Well, you know, some people, their, their blood glucose levels rose really high when they ate dietary fat. And that's because they had certain variations in genes that regulate the way their body processes fat. So that does make a difference. You know, I think it is really important to keep in mind anytime anyone's doing any type of experimental diet, they should always, you know, measure something, you know, before you start the diet, get a lipid panel. So look at your LDL, your HDL, your triglycerides also measure blood glucose levels before you start the diet and then after you start it so that you can see whether or not this diet's changing your your various biomarkers of health in a good or bad way and if you see things are going in a bad direction you can then also do you know look at your genetics to see, to sort of understand why possibly so besides things on diet and nutrition you've also done some research and writing on things that are called hormetic is that the right word hormetic stressors uh-huh so what are hormetic stressors? Well, the concept of hormesis refers to exposing the body to small amounts of stress, which then triggers cellular responses in the body that exceed what is actually needed to compensate for that little bit of stress that you exposed your body to. So there's actually a net positive effect, meaning so some of the cellular pathways that get activated are anti-inflammatory pathways, antioxidant pathways genes that are important for clearing away damaged cells, genes that activate stem cells. So hormetic stressor is often referred to like as a good type of stress, and it can include activities like exercise, heat stress, for example, using a sauna or a hot bath or a steam shower, cold stress, so using like a cold shower or even an ice bath, and even polyphenols found in a variety of plants are referred to as hormetic stressors. Well, let's talk about the, the heat stress. So I, I've, re- I've read some of the, the things you've put out there about that. So like, what are the benefits of exposing yourself to heat via sauna or steam bath or a hot, a hot bath? Well, a lot of the benefits from the sauna are based, uh, based off of research from uh, Dr. Yari Laukinen, who is out of Finland and has done some studies on large number of participants, about 2,000 men that have used the sauna either two to three times a week or four to seven times a week or just one time a week. And what he's found and published multiple studies on is that men that use the sauna two to three times a week have a 27% lower cardiovascular disease risk, 24% lower all-cause mortality risk, 20 lower percent Alzheimer's disease risk compared to men that only use the sauna one time a week. But when you go up to four to seven times a week, it's even more robust. So for example, 
those men have a 50% lower cardiovascular disease risk, a 40% lower all-cause mortality, and a 66% lower risk for dementia and Alzheimer's disease compared to men that only use it one time a week. So there's a variety of different mechanisms that also been looked at. So for example, Yari has looked at how heat changes the blood vessels and how basically your, your blood vessels become more pliable and respond better. It increases plasma flow and basically takes a lot of workload off your heart. So basically every time your heart beats to pump blood throughout the body to make sure blood gets to your various organs, including your brain, it has to do less work. So it's so it kind of lowers what's called cardiovascular strain. There's also a lot of studies looking at what are called heat shock proteins, which are activated when your body is exposed to, to heat. And heat shock proteins have been shown to prevent proteins from forming aggregates and plaques in your arteries and also in your brain, which lead to Alzheimer's disease. So a variety of studies have been done on that and have shown that people that sit in the sauna that is at least 163 degrees Fahrenheit for about 30 minutes, they can activate their heat shock proteins by about 50%. And this lasts for about two days without having to get back in the heat stress. But if you think about it, exercise also is a form of heat stress. You know, when you do exercise, you're elevating your core body temperature. So in a lot of ways, you know, doing something like a sauna or a steam shower or sitting in a hot bath, you know, it, it elevates your, your heart rate, you know, to, to, to somewhat moderate intensity exercise level. So a lot of the cardiovascular exercise um, benefits can be can be uh, had from doing something like sitting in the sauna for for 20 minutes or so. So that's that's work that like like I said a lot a lot of it's coming out of Finland. Interestingly, because we've been talking about genes, there are variations in genes that actually increase the activation of heat shock proteins in people. And very interestingly, people with these certain variations are more likely to live to be 100. Huh. Interesting. Well, let's talk about the opposite, cold exposure. So we've um, had guests on, talk, Scott Carney, he wrote a book about Wim Hof, sort of cold exposure. But what role, I mean, we know the benefits, there's a lot of them, but what are the what, what role do, do genetics play in whether you get those benefits from cold exposure? Uh, well, the, it depends on the benefits. So, you know, the the I would say the two main benefits or the most robust, I think, I would say most profound physiological responses to cold exposure is one, the robust release of norepinephrine from a a part of your brain called the locus corollius region. And norepinephrine is really important for focus and attention, vigilance, you know, it, it also improves mood. So that's, that's one robust, I would say, physiological response to cold. In fact, even people that immerse themselves in 40 degree Fahrenheit cold water for just 20 seconds could increase their norepinephrine by two to three fold. So 200 to 300% over their baseline, which is pretty, pretty good. The other response to cold is the increase in mitochondrial biogenesis, which is basically means you're growing and generating new mitochondria, which are the powerhouse, you know, energy producing powerhouses of the cell. And so this has been shown to happen in adipose tissue and also in muscle tissue. And so this is a really great thing because essentially what's happening is you're you're replacing, you know, old damaged mitochondria with new healthy young mitochondria. And also when you're making energy, you're releasing heat as a byproduct. So it's actually part of the the way your body stays warm. So it's part of the reason why you actually do make more mitochondria when you're exposing yourself to the cold. So ge- genetics does affect 
one of the processes of ramping up your energy metabolism through a process of just basically taking your mitochondria and up uncoupling them. And there's a gene that does this called UCP1. And there's different variations in this gene. And some people have a variation where they do it really well. And so they can actually tolerate cold even better than people that don't have a certain, that variation of it, because they're able to ramp up their metabolism even more, generate more heat to stay warm. And so they can stay in colder temperatures for longer. And they also have the benefit of burning more fat when they're in the cold. So those, those people are kind of lucky in that regard. Right. Is this the, 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 like the brown fat, white fat thing? Yeah, it is exactly. So that's the reason why it's called brown fat is because the mitoc- when you when you make more mitochondria, so I, I refer to this as called mitochondrial biogenesis, y- y- and you look at a fat droplet under a microscope, the more mitochondria they have, they look darker in color. And that's why it's often referred to as brown fat. It's essentially just because you have more mitochondria in the fat tissue, in the adipose tissue. That's why, that's why it's called brown fat. Yeah, using the tool, I found out that I don't like... I don't make brown fat or like what that doesn't happen to me. Like I don't, I won't lose weight if I take cold showers. I won't lose fat. Uh, so, so you don't do that as well. I don't do it as well. Right. I don't do it as well, but I still do it. Cause I mean, it, just, it feels good. I mean, that's why I like norepinephrine response. Yeah. I actually do. I like taking a cold shower before like a, a big event or if I'm going to, you know, give a talk or something that sort of usually gives me a little bit of anxiety. I'll take a really cold shower for as long as I can. And I really find that it helps helps lower my anxiety and and uh, helps me focus and just like you know stay focused for longer and feel good. So you know I I, I like the cold showers definitely. I'm, I'm a big sauna fan, but I really do like the cold showers. So uh, fasting is that a hormetic stressor as well? Fasting is also yeah. Fasting is another hormetic stressor. In fact, a lot of a lot of the the benefits of like more prolonged fast, which are longer fast, you know, three three to four day three to five days in humans. A lot of that research has been done by Dr. Walter Longa at USC. And he has shown, he's done studies in both animals and humans. And he has shown in in animal studies that basically a prolonged fast causes whole organs to shrink during the fast and then literally regrow after the fast, which is quite phenomenal if you think about it, like your liver just shrinking and also it happens other organs as well and even even parts of the brain. So he's showing this, that you know, these organs are shrinking and regrowing. And what he's found is that what ends up happening is that the fasting is a stress that causes any cells that are damaged, that already have, you know, that are not healthy cells, they're more damaged. Those cells die by a process called apoptosis. And, and then this happens during the fast because this, the, the fast is such a strong stress. It, you know, it causes those damaged cells to die. But the non-damaged cells, the cells that are healthier, it increases all these stress response pathways in them. So they make more antioxidants, more anti-inflammatory molecules. They just become more robust and stronger. And the damaged cells that die, what ends up happening is it, it causes stem cells to become activated. And during the refeeding phase, so after you're done fasting and you start to you know, eat again, the stem cells start to make new cells to replenish whatever cells were lost. So that's where the, the shrinking and then regrowing of organs comes from. It also, you know, you, you have better metabolism and things like that. But I find the, the clearing away of damaged cells and then essentially replenishing them with, you know, healthy new cells, I find that to be a very interesting, you know, area of research. And also it has lots and lots of implications for many diseases as well as just aging in, in general. Yeah, I think I've seen studies where 
reduced calories can increase longevity in mice at least they've seen that right and this is sort of another this is sort of another way of doing instead of having a reduced calories all the time you just kind of do this you know three or four day fast you know every so often depending you know depending on what your health status is you know some people that are really unhealthy and obese may have to do that more often and and other others that are not so, uh, you know, that are already healthy, maybe doing it once a quarter or something like that may be a nice way to just sort of clear away all the damaged cells. And it's kind of like taking out the garbage, you know, getting rid of the, the bad stuff and replenishing it with new healthy cells. So does the fast have to be three to four days to get the benefits? I mean, is there a benefit for like fasting 16 hours or 24 hours? Well, in terms of the stem cell activation, clearing away the damaged cells, Walter has shown that the prolonged fast, so the the three, four, five days is important. But he also has what's called a fasting mimicking diet, which is a five-day diet, and it's uh, a low calorie, and it has a certain macronutrient composition. So there's, you know, you can only get a certain amount of your calories from fat, a certain amount from carbohydrates, and a certain amount from protein. And he's shown that in a lot of ways that can mimic a, a water fast. So, so that's, that's a, a lot of work that he's done, but yeah, there are, very, there are a lot of benefits from doing, you know, just a, a 14, 16, 24 hour intermittent fast as well. I actually practice something called time restricted eating where I eat all of my food within, I try to eat it within a 10 hour time window so that I'm fasting for 14 hours every night. So you're sort of like getting this, you know, 14 hour intermittent fast on a daily basis and studies have shown, and this is a lot of work that's been done by Dr. Sachin Panda uh, at, the, at the Salk Institute. And, and that has shown, you know, to really improve metabolism in general, just to make, make your metabolism runs better. And so that's something, you know, definitely I would say a lot of benefits, but you're not going to be getting the, the robust clearing away of damaged cells and regeneration from just doing a, a short fast like that. But there are benefits just for normal metabolism, you know, that's important. So I think that I personally think both I'd like to, you know, tr- I'd like to start doing a little bit more of the more prolonged fast. And I think uh, Dr. Walter Longo's fasting mimicking diet's nice because a lot of people don't want to do a water fast. It's a, it's a really hard stressor. And, you know, it's kind of daunting to some people to, to like not eat for three or four days. So the fasting mimicking diet, which essentially is, like I said, it's a, it's a, there's a calorie cap. So, you know, it's about 700 to 750 calories a day. And, you know, 44% of those calories come from fat, 47% come from car- carbohydrate and about nine, 9% come from protein. And, and so he's got this whole diet that sort of mimics that, that, uh, water fast and, in, 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 in basically activates a lot of the same cellular pathways and have a lot of the same responses. At least that's, that's what he's, his preliminary data has shown. Right. So that, that's not for the faint of heart then. Cause yeah. I was thinking like, as, as a parent, man, that, or like, you know, you're a working parent three to five days without food. I think it, I, I'm already, you'd go bonkers. Right. With that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think, I think the, the fasting mimicking diet seems like a lot, de- definitely going to be more compliant where it's, you know, people will be, it'll be a lot easier for people. And I know a lot of people that have done it. I haven't done it yet just because when I started to get into this, I, I got pregnant and uh, now I'm, you know, at the point where I'm breastfeeding. And so I'm not like, I don't want to do any sort of fasting crazy stuff, you know, until I'm, I'm done with, with that whole uh, process. Right. But um, I, I, I am sort of interested in trying it out soon. I'm definitely going to try that out. Well, Rhonda, this has been a great conversation. We re- literally scratched the surface of what you've written about. Where can people go to learn more about your work? Certainly, they can go to my website, which is foundmyfitness.com. Found my fitness, all one word, no spaces. 
I also have an iTunes podcast, which you can find by searching my name or also by just searching found my fitness, all one word. I'm also found my fitness on all social media platforms, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. Awesome. Well, Dr. Rhonda Patrick, thank you so much for your time. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. My guest today is Dr. Rhonda Patrick. She's the founder and owner of Found My Fitness. You can find that at foundmyfitness.com where you can find all the episodes of her podcast as well as take that genetic test we were talking about to see how your body interacts with different nutrients. Also, check out our show notes at aom.is slash optimize where you can find links to resources where you can delve deeper into this topic. Well, that wraps up another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. For more manly tips and advice, make sure to check out the Art of Manliness website at artofmanliness.com. And if you enjoy the show, please give us a review on iTunes or Stitcher. It helps out a lot. And if you've done that already, please consider telling a friend or family member about the show if you think they get something out of it. As always, thank you for your continued support. And until next time, this is Brett McKay telling you to stay manly.